Our lives come from different directions, and from here they will diverge, but we will be different. For now, we stand at the crossroads of contradiction, the intersection of contrast and the meeting of confusion. And here we will see God and be transformed. The Spirit will guide us in the good way, and our souls will find rest. Come to worship, and come walk with God. Number 558. Number 558. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is lost in me, I
You may be seated. Exodus 34. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, yet he won't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Ezekiel 18. The one who sins is the one who will die. The son won't share in the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. Isaiah 2. The Lord will judge between the nations and settle disputes among the nations. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Joel 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Beat your plows into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Don't answer a fool's silly question, or you'll be as silly as the one who asked it. Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool's silly question with a silly answer, and the one who asked it will realize he's not as smart as he thinks. Words, words, words. I can't make any sense of this. In the end, what are these words regulating all our days? Explained and codified and argued about by learned people. Can following them to every jot and tittle bring life? Which word of God am I to believe, follow, or obey? This or that? You tell me. It is my pleasure this morning to introduce our testimony sharer, uh, J President Jim Brenneman. If you're not aware, Jim is in his third year as president of Goshen College. Prior to his coming to Goshen College, he was a pastor for nearly 25 years at Pasadena Mennonite Church and also served as adjunct professor in Old Testament uh, at various different seminaries and grad schools. Jim is married to Terry and they have a son, Quinn. Jim will be sharing part of his faith journey this morning using the title of Making Peace with Contradictions. If you still see a certain glow about Jim's face, it may have to do with the fact that he just returned from a historic inauguration of President Barack Obama, in which he shared with me that it was a wonderful experience, much like a pilgrimage, at which in my head I was thinking, I'm so glad for you, Jim. God be with you this morning, Jim. Well, let me first of all begin this morning by welcoming all of those who are returning to the campus again and welcoming any new students who are with us and in particular those, uh, potentially those Presidential Leadership Award nominees who might, be, have, might have joined us already this morning. Now, the advantage that I have over you in sharing my faith story is that I'm over 50 and can look back and piece together my story with the advantage of hindsight while you're looking forward, piecing your story on the run, as it were. Well, I am too, but to a different degree. And I hope you can find something to relate to in the telling of part of my faith story this morning. As you noticed, I've titled the comments Making Peace with Contradiction because my faith story involves oftentimes bringing together two opposing or more forces into a semblance of a meaningful spiritual life. And I want to thank uh, Seijin for capturing that on the visual uh, before us this morning. So here it is. My mom grew up Amish. Her faith is about as simple and straightforward as that, as anyone who, might, who has had an eighth grade education. It still is. But now she's a Southern Baptist, a seamstress living in Tampa, Florida for some 50 years, and still going strong. My dad grew up Mennonite in Iowa and became a spiritual nomad of sorts. He was anti-denominational, charismatic, a tent revivaler, 
a radical peacemaker, an anti-racist rabble-rouser, ending up in a multicultural, apocalyptic fringe group whose followers thought their leader was John the Baptist, forerunner of Christ, and the end of the world. They got one thing partially right. The end of the world did come for my dad between the first and second years of my college experience here at Goshen College. So when I speak of the apocalyptic literature, I always say it, it's about the end of the world as we know it, which is the next breath for any of us here, potentially. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage, hanging on in a coma, forcing a faith decision upon us as a family to believe in a miracle or graciously pull the plug. Contradictions. He died before either happened. I left for SST where Norm Kaufman, then Dean of Students, and his wife Sharon were our SST leaders, and they patched together some faith for me when I was in no shape to do it myself. Now backing up a bit, early on, our family landed in a racially and culturally mixed Mennonite congregation in Ybor City, that's the Latin Quarter of Tampa, where cigars are made and Cuban coffee. Put those two together and I'm in heaven. <laughs> Tampa, we ended up there. It was, however, the deeply segregated South at the time. I've said this before, the bathrooms, water fountains, beaches, restaurants, buses, and theaters were divided between the so-called coloreds and the so-called whites. And whenever we went to the beach, my father always positioned us right on the color side of the beach just to make a point about the discrimination. Amazingly, the little church we attended, as did my home life, imperfectly buck the racist norms of the times. When I was 12, I was baptized alongside my best friend, Roger Collins, an African-American kid from the projects. That day we became brothers in Christ, for we had always been brothers in friendship up until then. One year later, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. Contradictions. Some years after completing college, my youngest brother died of a massive heart attack while in church on a Sunday morning, arms raised singing praise to God in the presence of God and of his expecting wife and his two little daughters. Another jab at my faith. It still jabs me if I stop to think about it, but not as much as it did at one time. Contradictions. I came to Goshen College in 1973 to study pre-medicine and ended up studying science and Bible. Science and Bible, the so-called conflicting disciplines. I lost and found and lost and found my faith a few times here, but by graduation and thanks to some awesome, awesome professors in both science and Bible, I had discovered a new calling, a new sense of purpose, a new drive to study scriptures, which I'll come back to in just a minute. You see, living by faith for me comprises a daily, hourly, sometimes moment-by-moment -moment argument. I have bouts of peace but mostly my faith is like a Jewish mother or a rabbi arguing with God on, or anyone else who will listen about matters of 
existential importance to me. My life hangs in the balance of faith, but I am comforted by that as well. I would love the idea of a Christian yeshiva for kids, where Christian children would learn how to ask a million questions of God, a million questions of faith, and where such an enterprise is considered holy as it is in the Jewish tradition. Ever since I was a little kid, I questioned everything. But sometimes I felt like a fish out of water because faith was often seemingly too fragile to throw a few punches faith's way. I've never been one who relished the disengagement of my mind, doing that so-called centering thing, closing up the mental shop in order to experience God's presence, which to me feels like, when people talk about that, what happens in a coffin, like soul death. It's my version of hell, not bliss, sitting there silently. Though I'm overstating the point (laughs) to make a case. I I experience God closest and farthest, I should say, in conversation and dialogue with God, especially when God doesn't respond. My wife, Terry, on the other hand, is a contemplative. She's the intuitive person who loves to center and go off on silent retreats. And she experiences God in such a personal, powerful way that I can't deny that part of who she is. And she can't understand my version of faith either. We've lived more than 30 years in contradistinction to each other on that one, on how we experience God. But we honor each other's quest. Many people know I have a faith, many people I know have a faith that is tight, unified that is, and unquestioning. My faith, by contrast, thrives on contrary points of view. I would never go to the extreme that the American author Kurt Vonnegut did when he called the, quote, sweet miracle of unquestioning faith terrifying and absolutely vile. Certainly, the sweet miracle of unquestioning faith is not vile, but for me, it's a bit terrifying. In short, I have an ambivalent faith. I'm not sure if this is due to my personality, to nurture or nature. Is it due to living in a world of blatant, faithful contrast, a child internalizing the contradictions of his life? I'm guessing it's all of those. There are many more permutations to this story, but suffice it to say, it may help to explain why for me, faith has been a complete contradictory journey. I shouldn't say a complete one, not quite, but it's been a complex one. And I would not wish my particular faith journey on anyone else, but I would not trade my journey for anyone else's either, hands down, no way. As I experience it, an ambivalent faith by design listens to and learns from questions and argues with other faith traditions, even non-believing faith traditions. For example, the God is Dead movement in the late 60s, which was way before your time, some of you, that is before your uh, conscious awareness, perhaps. The God is Dead movement provided for me one of the best and most profound articulations of the incarnation that I have ever read. 
Had you told me not to read it, I would never have discovered that powerful, explanatory view of the incarnation of Jesus. I confess I truly understand the reasoning and arguments of most atheists and often sympathize with them, hard, uh, trying hard to convince themselves and others of God's non-existence. I don't agree with them, but I understand and sometimes like what they have to say. They kick my faith into high gear. They make me alert to my own beliefs. After all, what if they're right? And sometimes they're a hoot to boot. The most amazing part of my faith journey began here at Goshen College when I began to read the Bible inductively under the professor Stanley Shank. When I finally got around to reading the Bible very closely, as was read this morning, in all its conflicting argumentative splendor, I was relieved and marveled and grew to love that book more than any other because it both mirrored my own contradictory reality and faith and provided the framework by which to live my life for the rest of my life. My scholarly career and writing, some of you know, has been built on such canons in conflict, the title of one of my scholarly books, and I've often said that is my philosophical autobiography, trying to make peace with the Bible's contradictions. When scripture then invites us to live by faith or says that faith saves us, I believe the Bible is offering us one of the most honest conceptual frameworks to live by, bar none. Indeed, I believe none of us, not the atheist, not the agnostic, not the deist, the supernaturalist, or anyone in between, does not live by some version of faith. That is a radical claim but a true one, I believe. Surprisingly, faith provides the only truly, ultimately unifying response to the world's many voices, the Bible's own many voices, the many voices of my and our contradictory lives. Within scripture, there's a gem of a verse that argues that the one and only unifying factor of scripture itself the one and only unifying factor of my life and yours to which all the parts in one way or another when joined together point and testify, that unified force ironically stands outside Holy Scripture. That source of unity is the one God. Scripture speaks of that in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the Lord our God is one. All the rest of life comes in multiples. Prayer on This prayer is on the lips of every pious Jew when they wake up, when they go to sleep. It's on their doorpost. It's on their arms in prayer. And it's the last words they utter when dying. The Lord our God is one. That declarative sentence ties together both sides of the equation of my sometimes contradictory beliefs. God is the unified field, the big T theorem, that gathers the disparate pieces of our lives and makes us whole. All else, including Holy Scripture, falls under the jurisdiction of the one God. The Bible's many diverse voices under the divine presence of the one God challenges us to appreciate those voices within and about us, as well as those that may differ from us. Such a faith perspective 
when I am at my faithful best, keeps me from falling into what Ralph Waldo Emerson, Emerson called the vulgar mistake of dreaming that when I'm of dreaming that I'm persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. The vulgar mistake of dreaming that I'm persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. Hardly. Contradiction may be God's way of enlightening our dull senses that what we believe is not ultimate or final, thus displacing God, for God only is ultimate. The Lord God is the one and only. So, do I contradict myself? asked the poet Whitman for all of us. Very well then, I contradict myself, he says. For I am large, I contain multitudes. The same is true of scripture and of life, both contain multitudes. So in conclusion, for now, lest one imagines that such a faith perspective opens the door for rampant pluralism without limits, for now I would simply say, scripture also models for us the necessity of claiming a core set of convictions. Convictions that we stake our lives on, even as we hold them loosely, humbly, before God and other divergent, biblically-based beliefs. Two such convictions for me are found in the words of Jesus. Some have called it the Jesus Creed, borrowed from the Older Testament, in which Jesus said that all the law and the prophets, meaning all of the known Bible, hangs on these two verses, as does our salvation. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I've tried to shape my life around these very two basic beliefs, loving God, loving my neighbor, which includes loving myself, all under the acceptance by faith of the one God over, in, and above, and through us all, and for me, that God has been made most fully known in Jesus. But that's part two of this story. It's a whole nother wonderful story. Without hesitation on those points of conviction, loving God and loving others and loving yourself under the one God's reign, on those points of conviction, I would recommend such a framework of faith for each and every one of you, hands down, no question. Thank you, and may God bless you as you piece together your own faith story in the coming year here at Goshen College and in your life. Thank you. Stand with me and take your green Sing the Journey books open to number two. Um, and after this song, you will be dismissed. Um, we, there will be no solo on the first half of the song, and I invite the sopranos in this part of the congregation to um, sing the Journey is Long Descant in the repeat. Come walk with us, the journey is
verse 3 this time. Come up, lift us, and bring us by. Come up, lift us, and bring us by. 